Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we have clearly established uh, that the core doctrine in Galatians is justification by faith alone. Right? So we've seen that. Paul is clearly saying we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. But that is not the end. So I would say that's justification by faith alone. That on its own is not the end. And I would even be so bold as to say it's not the most important thing, even though that is the doctrine that Luther famously said that the church stands or falls on. Um, It's not quite the most important aspect of salvation because I would say that the fact that we are justified freely by God's grace, the fact that we have justification by faith alone, sets us on the path toward our entire purpose in life, which justification by faith alone unlocks, so to speak, which is to know God. That's the point of being justified, of being declared right with God, is so that we can know Him, so that we can have a relationship with Him, so that we can commune with Him through Jesus Christ. That's what just, That's why justification is so incredible, because it means we have peace with God. We can know Him. We can jump deeper into this ocean of knowledge. So we are not declared right with God so that we can simply say, you know, thanks God see you when you come and pick me up in a few decades or however long or when you return. It's, it's obviously so that we can know the God of heaven and earth. And this is uh, like I was saying last Sunday night, part of the issue with the modern church is this idea of becoming a Christian is just sort of being converted, joining a church, and that's kind of it, as opposed to being discipled, which is to grow deeper in this knowledge of God. So the point of justification by faith is so that we can spend the rest of our lives and all eternity knowing this infinite God in whom is the fullness of joy. So this passage is about the right direction of disciples. So we've gone through understanding the gospel in the first three chapters of Galatians, which was understanding the source. um, Well, it was actually the exclusivity of the gospel and then the source of the gospel that is divinely revealed and then the core of the gospel, which is this idea of justification by faith alone. And then um, last week, the freedom of the gospel. That's sort of understanding the gospel. Now we're moving into how do we live then in light of the gospel? And this first uh, section here is on the right direction. So the right direction now that we understand the gospel. This is about where your life is directed, where your thoughts are directed, where your devotion is directed. And when all of this is directed toward God, this is the right direction. It is to have a relentless desire to know Him, which is what we were just talking about from Augustine. It's to have this desire to know Him because we have been ravished by His love. And so the right direction for disciples of Jesus is where everything is directed toward understanding and knowing this incredible 
God. And the basis for this is in verse 9, where Paul says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So Paul is saying, like his um, argument to the Galatians, and actually why he's so perplexed, is he's saying, hang on, now that you would say you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's saying, or much more to be known by God, why would you turn away from this? Why would you turn away from this knowledge? He's saying, don't you realize that you can know God and you are known by him? So don't turn back to these weak and worthless elementary principles. Like now that you've come to know this all satisfying God, why would you turn back to the debilitating practices of the world? Why would you turn back to to trying to be right with him by the law, which creates a divide between you and God? That's the wrong direction. So the Galatians are turning the wrong way. That's what uh, the word means here. Um, now that you've come to know God, or rather than know God, how can you turn back again? It's like a reversal. How can you reverse what has just happened to you? So once you come to know God and are known by him, the right direction is to jump deeper into this knowledge. We will look at that toward the end. First thing we're going to look at is what exactly is steering the Galatians in the wrong direction. So what has turned them away? What have they turned to that is actually turning them away as uh, disciples? The first aspect of this, the first thing that has turned them away is that they were enslaved to moralism. I spoke a little bit about this last week. So verses 8 to 11, Paul describes his concerned that even though they claimed to know God, even though they, they were converted, like read through Acts, there are some incredible things that happens and they, there's good fruit that is seen early on. So they would call themselves Christians. They are turning back to the elementary principles of the world and becoming enslaved to them. And remember the elementary principles, this word that Paul uses here, um, uh, how can you turn back? again, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Remember that that word means everything which lies behind all of the structures of our society, like the governments and particularly the ideologies of our society. This is these, these elementary principles which sort of govern the way we are supposed to think. And I think particularly it is in the cultural ideologies and narratives of the day, like when you think about how you are supposed to live, the sort of cultural ideology that is influenced by these elementary principles is that like to live a good life, you have to um, travel the world, you have to have a life full of experiences, you definitely can't let anyone tell you what to do, don't be oppressed by the man, um, find a career that expresses who you are. That's sort of the... These, elementary principles that we can actually become enslaved by. We sort of buy into that idea of what true freedom is um, and we become enslaved by these elementary principles. Now for the Galatians, because they were influenced by the Judaizers, people trying to make them live like Jews, the way that they were enslaved by elementary principles was what we see in verse 10. Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. 
This is the Jewish ceremonial calendar. They turned to observing these laws in order to affirm their place as Christians. So it wasn't simply a cultural thing that they were doing. It was actually, you know, because they were influenced by Judaizers who said, you have to live this way to be a true Christian, to be a, you know, a good Christian. You have to live this way. So they were all of a sudden adding to the gospel and they were, became enslaved to these elementary principles by observing these religious principles without any intimate knowledge of their savior. It was not in the direction of knowing Christ. It was in the direction of just knowing these religious principles, almost to keep Jesus at a distance. Now, for our context, for people who would say uh, that we are following Jesus, being taken captive by elementary principles usually results in a form of moralism. And I, I spoke about this last week, so I won't repeat myself completely, but it's sort of where you treat the Christian life as basically just these moral codes. And it's not, um, it's, it's more like how some people can sort of understand the Christian life and say they're a Christian because they would say, oh, well, I attend this church. And I, um, I do read my Bible like I, you know, learnt the stories of the Bible as a kid. I'm a Christian. And it's actually reverting to these moral codes. Like this is what it means to be a Christian. I attend church. I do nice things to people. I make the confession when someone asks. I say, yeah, I go to church. I attend church. And it's sort of reverting back to these moral principles. And if you do that without any desire to know Jesus in an increasing manner, if that is done without any desire to actually know Jesus, then it's simply another form of moralism where there is no genuine relationship with Christ. And this is what had happened to the Galatians. They became enslaved to moralism, enslaved to these religious principles which kept God at a distance. The second way in which they turned to the wrong direction was that they desired to have their ears tickled. This is in the, the second section there in verses 12 to 20. Paul says, you know, what, what happened, Galatians? Like when I, when I came to you, you treated me like an angel. And now all of a sudden, I'm like your worst enemy. And he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, it seems clear that there is some desire in the people to simply have their ears tickled, to sort of just be told what they want to hear, because Paul clearly feels as though he has now become their enemy by telling them the truth of the gospel. He has witnessed to the truth and people react against it. They say, Paul, you're being too extreme. Stop imposing this upon us or whatever the language was, but whatever it was, he became an enemy by telling them the truth. And in verse 17, Paul says, these people make much of you, but for no good purpose. So he's saying these people, these false teachers, they flatter you. They just tickle your ears. They just say whatever you want to hear. We certainly experience that in our culture. We, false teachers tickle the ear. False teachers are basically a, a lot of predominantly in our culture. Anyone who is trying to make the Christian life as accessible as possible without any desire to follow Jesus, without any desire to be obedient to the ways of the Lord. Like the apostle John says in his first letter, like if you know 
if you love Christ, you will obey his commandments. Anyone who does not obey his commandments doesn't love him. That's just plain and simple. And a lot of false teachers now try and make it easier to, to follow Jesus without any actual love toward the Lord. So this is what was happening in the, the Galatian churches. False teachers were tickling their ears. Now, the reality of truly knowing God does not seem attractive to the natural person. Because to truly know God, that requires you to know him as a holy God. And to know him as a holy God will bring your imperfections to the surface. To know God will bring your sin to the surface. You will feel inadequate. It will bring your sin to the surface. And we usually, in our natural selves, react against this. And so we look for flattery elsewhere. We look for someone to tickle our ears and say, you know what, you're not that bad. You're not really that bad. You're an okay person. Don't worry. It's like um, some kids in school, uh, every kid is insecure, but kids with particular insecurities usually like to have a friend with them who was not so good looking and not so good at sports and it kind of made them feel better about who they were. So they actually liked having that sort of like goofy kid because it made them look fantastic. And then the worst thing that that um, kid who had the goofy kid next to them could happen is then someone else who's better looking and better at sports comes next to them and all of a sudden they feel inadequate. And they don't like it. And that is like us. That's like us in our natural self. We want, we want worse people. We always want to justify ourselves by saying, well, I'm not as bad as this person. We want that, that um, goofy kid next to us. But the reality is when we come before a holy God, the perfect God, we feel inadequate. We feel inferior. The natural part of us doesn't like this. And so we avoid, we sort of react against this by avoiding the fact that God is holy. We don't like to teach on that. We don't like to teach on reverence, the need to bow down before God because it actually makes us feel inferior. It makes us feel less of a person. We do this by bringing down the requirements of Scripture upon us. That's how we tickle our ears. And it is a dangerous thing to look for flattery. It's a dangerous thing to just want our ears to be tickled. Because like Paul says here, it's not for a good purpose. He's saying these false teachers simply want to shut you out of the gospel so that you can make much of them. They're just looking for you to then reciprocate and flatter themselves. But Paul says they're actually shutting you out from the gospel of Christ. They're shutting you out from true freedom. A desire to simply know and follow Jesus on your own terms, where your ears are tickled, is going to result in being shut out from the gospel of Christ. The third aspect of their misdirection is a failure to look to the true promise. Now, this is in verses 21 to 31, which I must admit is a very complex passage and I hope to be able to study it in a bit more depth on Wednesday. I'm just going to leave most of it today. But it's where Paul basically says, Abraham had these two sons, right? We know the story of Abraham. Uh, God came to him and said, you'll be the father of a great nation. And obviously for that to happen, well, Abraham needs to have a child. But he was old, like 70 when God came to him. And Sarah, his wife, was old as well. And so 15 years went by 
And Sarah had a slave and basically said, Abraham, you're super old. This is probably not going to happen. Just like impregnate Hagar, the slave, and have a child so that God's promises can come about. And of course that happens and they have Ishmael. But then 10 or 11 years later, because Ishmael was not the son of the promise, Sarah at a very old age gives birth to Isaac. And you have the two children, one through Hagar the slave, one through Sarah, which is the child of the promise. And Paul here is saying that they represent two different realities. The son of the slave, represents the present Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, this place of slavery under the law. Whereas Isaac, the son of the the promise, represents the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, there is a lot more to say on this, as I said, and I, I do admit this is... Um, we're always jumping bridges to apply it to our context. I'm probably taking a big bridge to, to, to apply this, but I think one particular application that we can take from this passage is to ask ourselves where we look to for God's promise. Where do we look to for God's promise? So do we look for God's promise here in this present, in the here and now, in this earthly Jerusalem, as Paul is saying? Or do we look to the heavenly Jerusalem? Do we look forward to what is to come? Jerusalem is, of course, the place of God's presence. That's, it was the place uh, where God had chosen to make his name dwell. And the promise of God is that we will enjoy his presence in the new heavens and new earth. So do we... Look for the fulfillment of God's promise of his presence simply in what we can see and touch in this life alone. Do we only ever look to God's promise in this life alone? And an indication of that is if you are trying to live your best life now, if you're trying to find satisfaction in this life, if you're trying to only ever um, uh, make your life great here and now without any longing for the future, then maybe you are looking to this present Jerusalem. And that's actually, John Calvin talks about the idea of all of the suffering and wickedness in the world as evidence pointing to heaven. Because if God was to do away with all of the wickedness and evil now, then what what would we be waiting for? We would, of course, be waiting for his particular presence. But that is particularly the absence of all evil. Like God's presence will drive away all evil. But the fact that we have injustice in the world, the fact that we have um, evil and suffering in the world makes us realize that this world is not where we place our hope. We place our hope in the heavenly reality. So do we look for the true fulfillment in the heavenly reality of the kingdom of God, which then causes us to disregard particular aspects of this life because we are longing for something greater. We're longing for our home in heaven, which is the place of God's presence. The Galatians clearly were in danger of reverting back to this place of slavery. They were in danger of just looking for fulfillment in the here and now and what they could do by observing religious customs. Whereas we, we must 
reject that. We must reject the idea of looking for the fulfillment of God's promises in the here and now, of constantly fixing our eyes upon the here and now and longing for God's presence in the renewed heavens and earth. So these are the things which are steering the Galatians in the wrong direction. They are becoming enslaved to moralism. They desire to simply have their ears tickled and they fail to look to the true promise. Now, what is the right direction? This brings us all the way back to the start. Verse 9, Paul says, If you have truly come to know God and be known by Him, why would you turn away from this? This is the most wonderful, incredible thing that you can know God. You peasants can know the King of everything. You can know God. The right direction once we are justified by faith is to relentlessly pursue our Savior. And this is what it means to be a disciple, right? A disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. A disciple is a learner or a follower. So a disciple learns what it is to follow Jesus and be conformed to his image. Now, how do we learn unless we know? Learning is to know. It's to increase in knowledge. We must, therefore, as disciples, increase in our knowledge of God. We must know God. We must know him deeply. This is what Jesus says when he summarizes what true eternal life is. Everyone wants to know what eternal life is. What is eternal life? Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer says, Eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's what eternal life is, that they know you, that they know you intimately and deeply. In Jeremiah chapter 9 from the Old Testament, this is a pattern that was always through the Bible, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, well, God is actually speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. So don't let anyone, bo- if you're going to boast about anything, There is no point boasting about anything unless it is this, that you know me. You know how, again, primary school example, kids, if they actually know someone like the big kid in school, the popular kid in school, and if they truly know them, they like to actually boast in that. Yeah, I know Big Tom. I know him. That wasn't me. I certainly wasn't the cool kid, but there was other kids called Tom who were much cooler than me. And if I knew them, I would have boasted in that. Yeah, I know him. And kids... Then, I mean, they in that example, they are not trying to assert any, like then they're, they're not bringing anything to the table. Their, their whole idea of boasting is wrapped up in this other person. I know him. I know that guy. And God is saying, if you're going to boast in anything, you boast in the fact that you know me. You know me. You know that I exercise steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. So this is the intended fruit of justification. It is that we would know God. It is that we would be justified, declared righteous, forgiven of our sin, so that we can know God. And the desire to know God makes all the difference in whether or not we will live with eternal purpose or fleeting passions and pleasures that will not last. The desire to know God makes all the difference as to whether or not we will live with eternal purpose or fleeting passions. J.I. Packer, who wrote the famous book, Knowing God, says, 
What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? This the Christian, like this is what everyone wants. Everyone wants something big enough to catch their imagination and lay hold of their allegiance. And this the Christian has, because there's no higher goal than to know God. There's nothing higher. So what does it mean to know God? Knowing God is not simply academic head knowledge, nor is it simply a subjective intuition or feeling that people have through sort of their own experiences. It's, it's um, neither solely those. And this is the common issue that comes up when we think about knowing God. Is this emotional or intellectual? Is knowing God an emotional experience or is it intellectual? So is uh, knowing God simply something we do spiritually by sort of connecting with God in our own way through music or a walk in the, the woods or something like that? Or is knowing God um, studying his word in depth and understanding essential doctrine, understanding the doctrines of grace? The answer, I would say, is both. It is both those things. It is uh, both emotional and intellectual. And I'm using intellectual, not to talk about people who have a superior intellect, but just in its basic sense, intellectual is just using your reasoning abilities to understand things. And so I'm I think our knowing God requires intellect with whatever reasoning capabilities we have been given to then use them to understand God from the child to the educated adult. We all use intellect in that way. We're all growing. So it is both emotional and intellectual. So just read through the Psalms. The Psalms are a beautiful example of where you see deep emotion the emotions of knowing God. You see the emotions ranging, ranging from fierce hatred of wickedness, a righteous lament pouring out their hearts, all the way to ecstatic joy over God's salvation, where the psalmist is calling for, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. There is deep emotion in that. But there is also a clear desire to know God intellectually. Just read Psalm 119. It's all based on knowing God's word. It's all based on understanding the law of the Lord. In, uh, I think a great example of this is in uh, the letter to the Philippians, where Paul prays to the Philippians. And he says, I pray that your love, that is an emotion, your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So we often think of like prayers, um, you know, that, that it's, it's actually that their um, knowledge would, would increase their love or something like that. But Paul is actually saying, I pray that your love would increase into knowledge and depth of insight so that you would be able to discern what is best and maybe pure and blameless before the coming of the Lord. So he's praying that your emotion would then result in this desire for knowledge, this depth of insight. So if we only have one of these present, emotion or intellect, then we have a dangerous imbalance. We need both. The right direction for the disciple is one which seeks to grow intimately in their intellectual knowledge of Christ and his word that has a, a, a 
desire for that. But if this is truly done, if this is genuinely done, a desire to know Christ intellectually, then it will result in overwhelming emotion. It will result in despair over sin. It will result in joy over the grace of God. It will move your heart. It will affect you emotionally. Rich theology leads to doxology. Doxology, words of praise. Rich theology, understanding the grace of God, leads to praise. It leads to, it moves you emotionally. Um, God has given us emotions. They are a good thing when used toward Him. So what does it mean to know God? It is to have a relentless desire to know Him through both intellectual intent and raw emotion. Raw emotion that lays everything bare before God. Now, how do we know God? If, if we want to know someone, they obviously have to reveal themselves to us. Like if you remember getting to know someone, one of your best friends now, or someone you were dating, you obviously needed them to open up to you. When I started dating Jasmine, I needed her to actually open up to me, to, to share things with me so that I could get to know her. She had to do that to me. I had to do that to her. To know someone, we have to actually have that person reveal themselves. Now, how has God revealed himself to us? He's revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we come to know God the Father through Christ the Son. That's how God has revealed himself. It's the primary way that he has revealed himself. And this is incredibly significant for us in our understanding of who God is. Because we know God is holy, right? He, he is full of wrath. We can't ignore that. He is full of wrath toward all unrighteousness. But the primary way in which God has revealed himself to us is as Father. That's the primary way God has revealed himself to us, is as Father and this understanding must be the basis for which we then relentlessly pursue deeper knowledge of our God. Because we see God as Father, not as some distant being, but as Father, as a relational being, as a loving God who is a Father to children. And the problem that most people have is they do not see God as Father, either because they see Him as a cruel Lord or they see him as more of like a, a stepdad figure who they just sort of manipulate. You know how children, if they don't enjoy the stepdad coming in, they just sort of manipulate them. They're rude. Some people have an irreverence toward God as sort of this stepdad figure. But the fact that God is father means that we neither see him as a cruel Lord because he is a loving father. He's not a cruel Lord. He doesn't treat us as slaves, but as sons. We see the compassion he has toward his children. And we also do not see him as a weak stepfather figure who we can manipulate and pick and choose from his word because we know that he is a firm father who has authority over his children, who will discipline his children because that's what a loving father does. They discipline their children. So what keeps us in the right direction as disciples is our relentless desire to know God. And the way that we know our God is through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's how we know God. And now just as I finish, perhaps more significant than knowing God is, as we see in this passage here, it is actually the fact that we are known by God. 
That's what Paul says. Now that you know God, and where he says rather, it's actually a word that means much more than. So more than this, you are known by God. This is the creator of everything saying, I know you. I know you. I know the hairs on your head. I know your every thought and emotion. I know how to comfort and how to discipline. What, what level of knowledge must someone have of us to know us before we were born? What level of knowledge must there be to know us before we were actually born? To know when we sit and when we rise to discern our thoughts from afar, to know the words of our mouth before they even come off our tongue, to know that. And this is what makes the love of God so astonishing because God knows every one of our thoughts. And man, I bet you guys, because I know I do, have some pretty evil thoughts a lot of the time, some pretty despicable thoughts, and God knows them all. He knows them all. You can't hide anything from him. And he still loves you. He still pours out his love. And he knows every single ounce of you much more than you know yourself. We are known by him. Sinful human beings are known intimately by the God of heaven and earth. That is an incredible reality. See, think of... Any other example in the world where there is someone who is extremely significant speaking to someone who's clearly inferior, like when you sometimes see um, foreign dignitaries or like the prime minister going around doing their walks in public and they're like shaking hands with the plebs of society to show that they're kind of, they're real people and they can sort of, you know, talk to the commoners. And I just find it very cringeworthy because often, I mean, you know that it's not genuine conversation. I mean, it's difficult. There's cameras around and so the prime minister is there and they're sort of shaking hands with people and asking questions. But you can tell they really just want to give their 10 seconds to show that they're talking to the commoners and they want to move on. So, And most Australians react against that. But there are some people who even with that little 10-second handshake and how are you going, what do you do from the prime minister would think, what an honor, what an honor. This is the prime minister spoke to me. Most people from um, non-Western countries would certainly have that. They're, they're not as entitled as we are. So they actually would just be so grateful to have a prime minister come and, and talk to them. Truly humble people would still appreciate the fact that they've just been spoken to by someone very significant, even if it's, to most people, it seems like something insignificant. Now, how should we feel when we realize that the God of heaven and earth who created everything <coughs> speaks to us, but not just like a casual little, hey, Jan, how are you going? Have you had a good day? You've got to move on to the next person. Hey, Sarah, you know, like it's not, it's not the sort of prime minister speech. It's actually an intimate conversation where God, the God who created everything, speaks to you intimately and he says, I know you. I know, I know what you've been going through. I know. I know the despair. I know the difficulty. I know it all. Isn't that comforting when you hear someone who, can, who says, I know? It's very uncomforting when you hear that and you, can, you actually think they don't know. You don't know. You don't understand my situation. But you can't say that to God because he knows all. And because 
He has revealed himself in Jesus, who is our perfect advocate, who has been tried and tempted in every way as we are. And so that's why he can say, I know, I know what you've been going through. I know the pain and I will comfort you. And the fruit of this is supposed to be a relentless pursuit to know Christ. And that is why Paul is so perplexed. That is why he's so perplexed over the Galatians because God has revealed himself and yet they're turning away. And I, I must admit that's why it makes me so perplexed sometimes to see people who just don't show a desire to know Christ. I'm like, do you know? I don't think you do know this God because if you did, there would be something, there would be a desire to want to know him. It's not about intellectual perfection. It's just about this desire to want to know this God. That's the reality that we have as Christians. So do you know God? Do you know his overwhelming patience to pass over all of our sin? To pass over it all, all of our sinful thoughts and acts of rebellion. Do you know his utter holiness to have never sinned, to know nothing of an impure thought? Never, to have never sinned or done any evil. That is the holiness of God. Do you know his fierce wrath to literally open up the ground and consume a people who were rebelling against him? We read about in Numbers. And do you know his immeasurable love to extend forgiveness to the very people who were rejecting him? The very people who were rebelling against him to extend his overwhelming love. And finally, are you known by him in this way? This is either the most comforting or most frightening reality in all of life because we know that many people will come to Jesus and say, I knew you. I know you, Jesus. I did these things in your name. But what will Jesus say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I do not know you. I don't know you. I never knew you. That's a scary thing. But if we know him and know that he knows us, we will stay on this path of relentless pursuit to grow deeper in this ocean of knowledge. That is, that is what the, the Christian life of, of a disciple is about. It's not about doing church. It's not about just rocking up to a place every few times a week, doing a few deeds of charity. It's about together growing in this deep, intimate knowledge of our Savior, growing in our knowledge of God, swimming in this ocean that we will spend the rest of our lives touching the surface of, yet growing so incredibly deep in our understanding. And it will be both with intellectual intent and raw emotion. And so that is the, the invitation for us. That's the invitation for us as Christians, as this community, to just grow in our knowledge of God. Let me pray. Father, please come and speak to us that we may know you more and more deeply. Give us a desire to grow in our understanding of you, both where we are moved emotionally, where we are, we are affected um, with, with desire, with a desire to know you, a desire to love you, a desire to share that love with others. Make us to know your word in ways that would cause us, like Paul, to just spontaneously explode in worship over the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways, how inscrutable are his judgments. 
What a wonderful, wonderful reality is that we can know you and that we are known by you. Thank you that right now, in this moment, you know us deeply and intimately. You know the hairs of our head. You know our innermost beings. You know all of our thoughts, all of our wickedness, and yet you love us. Thank you, O Lord. May you keep us on this path. May you keep us on the right direction, growing in our knowledge of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.